0: Our New Testament passage this morning is a challenging one. It is usually treated as two different passages. The first has to do with divorce. The second has to do with swearing oaths. Based mainly on these two passages from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the early tradition of the church said of both divorce and swearing oaths, don't do either of them ever. And that was that. Well, hold up. Actually, the divorce teaching in Matthew 5 already had an exception built into it. The translations differ, but the basic main Protestant interpretation was the exception was if your spouse committed adultery. The oath teaching, though, had no exception whatsoever. The church treated these teachings from Jesus as moral laws. Jesus was the new lawgiver, like Moses, but now on the Sermon on the Mount. And like Moses, but more strictly, Jesus had prescribed a law against divorce, and so his followers must simply obey. This meant for many, many centuries that it was taught and believed that no matter how terrible or violent or dysfunctional a marriage might be, that divorce was wrong unless someone had committed adultery. For centuries, many Christians taught this and believed this and practiced this or tried to, and some still do today. And less well-known, but it's still an important part of Christian tradition, Christians for centuries believed that, some Christians at least, that Jesus had prescribed a law, a moral law, against ever swearing any kind of oath. So, for example, if a court required you to swear an oath, like on a Bible or something, you were required to refuse to do so, even if you were thrown in jail or, or worse. This no oath under any circumstances idea took root mainly in the radical Reformation tradition and still seen, for example, among, like, Mennonites. The provision that was made for such folks was that they were given the opportunity to affirm, but not swear. I put these two teachings back together again today because together they offer a great illustration of a very important theological and moral theme in the Bible that I think we need to recover today. And that theme is covenant. If you remember only one thing I say this morning, well, first of all, I'll be sad about that, but if that's all you can remember, remember this. Covenant is maybe the most central theological and moral theme in the Bible, or certainly in the top three. It can help us live our lives if we can recover it today and understand what is meant by it in the Bible. And I propose that it is what jesus actually had in mind in the passage today that when teaching about divorce and when teaching about swearing an oath he was really teaching about covenant making and covenant keeping a broader theme so let's take the oath passage first and look at it from a covenantal perspective rather than a legalistic perspective matthew 5:33 reads Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. The Old Testament law and then the Jewish tradition after that had developed an elaborate system for swearing oaths. Oaths were either to promise what you were going to do, I swear that I will do thus and so, or to swear that you were telling the truth like in a court of law and testimony. We still have vestiges of this today. You might have found yourself saying or heard somebody say this week, I swear that this time I will not forget to pick you up after school. Or I swear that what I am saying to you right now is the absolute truth. You can count on it. These two examples, though, already hint at the problem with swearing to do something or swearing to tell the truth. In most cases, think about it, in most cases you wouldn't really need to swear to something if you were reliable in the first place, right? If you were reliable in telling the truth every time, you wouldn't need some time to say, I'm telling you the truth this time. If you were reliable in keeping your promises, you wouldn't need to swear that you would keep this promise. In everyday life, we generally only swear to things when our overall reliability is in question. So Jesus gets that, and he says, I say to you, do not swear at all by anything. And he lists all the different things you could swear to in that time. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What was going on was that in Jesus' context, some had constructed elaborate, hierarchical, technical oath systems in which if they swore by one holy thing, it meant more than if they swore by a slightly less holy thing. Religion is really good at doing stuff like this, you know? The system was a recipe for false promises, deception, and lies a little bit like swearing to something with your fingers crossed behind your back. Jesus says, listen, throw all that stuff out and tell the truth all the time, full stop. Here's another way to kind of step back and say it. Human life is built on covenants. A covenant is a sacred agreement between people to behave in a certain way toward each other. In the Bible, a covenant is also a sacred agreement between God and people or groups of people in which both God and people promise to behave in a certain way and to maintain a certain kind of relationship together. Now, there are moments in life in which we do make certain sacred promises or oaths even now that amount to covenants or are explicitly of a covenant nature. Sometimes when we join a a, a social club, there's a covenant oath or pledge. Um, Certainly when people get married, usually there's still some kind of sacred oath exchange that is made in a wedding service. Promises are exchanged in the sight of God to behave in a certain way towards this person all the days of my life. Now, these are all explicit covenants, and they are all very important. Covenants are different from other agreements that we make, like, for example, when we make a contract to buy a house. A contract has a binding quality, sure, but it's not a sacred agreement. It usually has explicit time limits, and there's usually some kind of escape clause with a contract. But that's not really how we think of covenants. What I think is going on in Jesus' teaching about oaths is that he is saying that we should not need to make a sacred oath in order to be counted on to keep our promises and to tell the truth. We should be reliable and trustworthy people all the time. We should be truthful people. Other people should be able to count on us when we make a promise, and other people need to be able to trust us when we say whatever it is that we say. Most of the time, on most days, we live our lives based on implicit covenants like the covenant to tell the truth when when you speak. We don't have to swear that this time we're telling the truth or that this time we will keep our promises because every time we speak, it is understood implicitly that we are speaking truthfully. If this were not able to be counted on, human relationships would quickly deteriorate because it is exhausting to have to fact-check everything that someone says to you. In fact, it is impossible to fact-check everything that somebody says to you. When it gets even in this neighborhood, trust breaks down and relationships end. If people don't keep their implicit promise to tell the truth, there can be no relationship. So Jesus says, in the context of a kind of a legalistic religious escape clause about truth-telling or oath-swearing, Jesus says, just be trustworthy, Honest, truthful, reliable. Only make promises that you intend to keep and then keep them. Let your words be true. Only say things that are true and mean what you say. The covenantal structure of human relationships requires this. This shouldn't have to be said, but it does need to be said in our time. Now, let's turn to marriage for just a second. There are certainly some relationships that are not just implicitly covenantal, they are explicitly covenantal. Marriage is one of them. Now, I've been uh, a minister for 30 years. I know it's hard to believe I'm a very youthful-looking fellow, (laughs) but I have been in in ministry for 30 years, and in that 30 years, I've had the great joy of officiating at probably 60 weddings. I love doing weddings. Want to get married? I got some time. You all good? Okay. Okay. One of the things I most value about when a couple asks me to perform their wedding is that I, I get to walk through their vows in advance and talk with them about what it is they're going to promise that day. I use this as a teaching opportunity to talk about what exactly is a married couple or a marrying couple promising to each other. What, what is the content of their promises? If you don't think about the content of the promises then what do the words mean? It's not like just decorating icing on the cake. Those words actually mean something. I want to know if the couple knows what they are saying, if the promises that they are making are meaningful to them. And I want to try to figure out, is this couple made of stern enough stuff that they have some prospect of being able to actually keep the promises that they are making on their wedding day? A traditional wedding ceremony is one of the few places today where we actually see someone make an explicit public covenant to do something. Another very rare example of explicit public covenant making is when a public official swears an oath of office. A covenant making ceremony like this is what linguists call a speech act. Meaning, you say something publicly before a gathered community, and as you say it, something altogether new comes into existence that did not exist before you said it. You were a private citizen, and now you are a senator. You were single, and now you are married. You were prior to having made a covenant, and now you have made a covenant. You've made a covenant with the community that you are serving or with the person you are marrying. And if you're a believer, you've made a covenant before God. One reason we still have this vestigial hand up or hand on the Bible thing, even in secular America, is a sense of the the need for God to help us keep our covenants. So this takes us back to Jesus' teaching about divorce. Matthew 5.31, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is based on Deuteronomy 24.1 which simply notes in passing that if there is to be a divorce in ancient Israel, it can only be initiated by the man, and he must write a certificate of divorce and hand it to his wife as he boots her out the door. This is part of the patriarchal nature of some of that Old Testament law. Jesus says when asked about this, that he thinks this provision was merely a concession to human hard-heartedness. He says, it was not so from the beginning. This was not God's plan. And it is pretty clear from the historical research that men were abusing this certificate of divorce provision to abandon their wives for no good reason. So without using the word covenant, I think Jesus is appealing to the concept. And so he limits divorce to the very rare circumstance of sexual immorality. And in the Matthew version, it's sexual immorality on the part of the wife. This must have been very rare because women's freedom of movement was so strictly constrained and adultery actually had the death penalty attached to it under Old Testament law. What he's really saying is attempting to protect women. He is saying to the men, you have made a covenant. Your wife and your children count on your covenant keeping and you don't get an easy out. Keep your covenant. Keep the explicit covenant you made with your wife. Keep the implicit covenant you made when your children were born. And these covenants are covenants before the eyes of God to whom you are accountable. Now, I think that makes a lot of sense even today. But it gets more complex when we think of another wrinkle. Even the sacred covenant of marriage can be strained and broken by the misconduct of one or both spouses. This is one reason why I ask couples that I marry to think long and hard about promises like love, honor, and cherish, cleave only unto you as long as we both shall live in sickness and in health. I say to them, this promise has some teeth to it, and today you can never imagine a situation in which you might ever consider breaking this promise. But each day, your actions and yours alone will determine and demonstrate the seriousness with which you intend to keep your covenant. And if you violate that covenant badly enough or often enough or seriously enough, you have the power to create the conditions for the end of your marriage. That is actually true of all human covenants. They have an absolute kind of binding quality, but our misconduct can erode them and finally can destroy them. Nowadays, most Christian pastors are certain that it's not only adultery that can strain or break a covenant. Abuse and violence and criminal behavior and desertion and other things also can threaten a covenant of marriage. On a case-by-case basis, there are are times when divorce is tragically necessary because of the harm, you might say, the covenant-breaking that is being done by one of the spouses. Sometimes when when a person initiates a divorce, they're not the one breaking the covenant. They're just simply acknowledging that their partner has already done so. Now, of course, our goal as Christians is not to adjudicate divorce cases, not to do more legalism, but instead to help people take seriously the covenant of marriage and to succeed in keeping their covenants. But the sum of the matter in both of the issues that I've been talking about is this. Part of the core of Christian moral behavior is covenant keeping. Learning to keep our implicit covenants of telling the truth and keeping the promises that we make and the oaths that we swear. Learning to keep... The implicit promise of of telling the truth even when we've not made a promise. Asking God for help in living up to the covenants that we make. Asking for God's forgiveness when we fall short. For God is gracious. Not just demanding, but also forgiving. I want to wrap up by talking about our covenant with God. The entire explicit structure of the Bible is covenantal. It's very clear in the Isaiah 56 passage that was read. God had made covenant with Israel. The promise was God would be their God and Israel would be God's people. God had made many promises to Israel as part of God's side of the, of the covenant. Israel's promises were spelled out in Old Testament law. What Isaiah 56 adds is the very good news that Israel's covenant with God was not a closed but an open covenant. And it was a covenant not based on race or nationality, but a covenant open to the stranger and the foreigner. It was a covenant not about physical perfection, but a covenant that was open to the eunuch. It was a covenant open to anyone who would hold fast to the law and love of God. The Christian faith is also explicitly covenantal, but I believe the concept has slipped away from us. It is explicitly covenantal, for example, at the Last Supper, when Jesus says, Now you witness the new covenant that will be made in my blood. It is covenantal when we get baptized. As I understand there's going to be a baptism here next week. When we get baptized and we say, I covenant to follow Jesus as my Lord and to accept his love for me as my Savior. And when the community gathers around the new baptized person and says, we covenant to support you in your new covenant with God. The central core of Christian identity should be our shared covenantal allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that also then should be the core of of our identity as a congregation. What binds congregations together is nothing less and nothing more than our shared communal covenant with Jesus Christ. What we have in common is that we have all pledged our lives to Jesus Christ. And we are in various stages of the journey of following Him in this or that particular congregation. Many have noticed that church attendance and membership in our era is something like loyalty to our consumer products too much of the time. It's weak and fickle and changeable. Today you like Ford, now the new product is Honda. Today you like Weechex, but it might just be Cinnamon Toast Crunch next week. That may be okay for cereal or or a car, but it's not okay for church. Churches erode dramatically when people's commitment to them is it about the level of a consumer product. So I guess my challenge to this particular community, as as it would be to any congregation, is to ask, how deep is your sense of covenant with one another, with this congregation, as the context in which you live out your personal covenant with Jesus Christ? Congregations depend on at least a core of members Who have made a covenant with a particular congregation that is just about as deep in their bones and in their heart as any other covenant they have ever made in their lives. Now, that is the ballast, you might say, that sustains a congregation. At that point, the job of this covenantal community is to throw open its doors to newcomers. To welcome others in, the doors must always be open. But the openness is an invitation to join in covenant community, not just any kind of community. A group of people passionately devoted to Jesus Christ, covenanted together on the journey of discipleship in covenant congregation and community. My prayer for you is that that is who you are and that it will be who you are in the days to come. May it be so. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for your grace that you reach out to us and make covenants with us, however unworthy and fickle we are. Our minds and eyes and hearts go back across the the landscape of biblical history. We situate ourselves in the line of covenants that began with Noah and extends through Jesus and the church. May we deepen our individual covenant commitments to you and to living in the way that you call us to live. May this congregation deepen its sense of covenant commitment to this place, to this community. Open doors, open hearts, sturdy covenant community. And may we as such people, be able to bear faithful witness to this kind of life in a confused and divided society. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.